0: In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions I, I. Okay, everybody, we are got uh, Bridget Shea back on the podcast after our hiatus last month since we were both a little under the weather at different points last month. Uh, so, welcome back to the show. Thank you.
1: It's good okay. to be back.
0: Good. Um, we talked a little bit like before we lined up this podcast and then just, you know, like a few minutes ago about um, something extremely big in the news right now, which obviously is the coronavirus, this worldwide, you know, like epidemic, pandemic of like this virus that's going on extremely contagious um so we're going to cover a little bit more like like what it is you know like like how it spread you know like our way in western medicine you know dealing with it and treating with it which is tamiflu is kind of like the big thing i know a lot of people are buying stocks in 3m right now because they're the ones who' come out with tamiflu um you know and like that seems to be what most doctors are prescribing here um but we talked about briefly you know explaining the Eastern approach to it and like what they're doing in China to be able to help, um, like with this virus over there. Mm. Um, and then also like I wanted to kind of cover at the same time that I have a really tough time participating in the outrageousness of the coronavirus talk. Um, mostly because like I just think that it is something that people really want to latch on to because I, I continually face people With the reality that the common cold and flu still kills more people in North America every year than what the coronavirus does, we still globally lose more people to cigarettes, smoking cigarettes every year, heart disease, diabetes, like depression, and all these other things. But we seem to have just overly attached ourselves to um, this, which just really brings back to me like a lot of the same narrative we've seen during SARS. When after it was all said and done, like our own government here in Canada fully admitted that they kind of went a little overboard and made a lot bigger deal about it than what they should have after everybody went and got vaccinated for it. So um, yeah. I guess maybe we can just start um, coronavirus and Bridget. Yeah. And-
1: all right. So I think it's important what you touched on is um, the tendency toward overreaction to anything. I know specific, specifically being in the United States, I, am, I often look to other countries' uh, news sources in order to find out what the facts are because journalism in our country has declined so horribly um, in the past several years. There are some good sources, but I, I try to find where I can see the truth and in, um in this situation uh, specifically from a variety of sources. And um, what you touched on about the fact that yes, more people die each year from the cold and flu than currently have died this year from the coronavirus, um, is, a, is a good way to kind of bring ourselves back to, you know, practicality and ground ourselves a little bit, not get too carried away. I think there are a few things that make this particular pathogen very concerning. Um, uh, One is that the amount of people that got sick as fast as they did and as horribly as they did. Mm. So when this first broke out in China, people were in line with severe symptoms at the hospital and there weren't enough beds. There is a hospital constructed in Wuhan in one week just to be able to deal with the amount of people that were coming in with severe pneumonia-like symptoms. So that probably made the death toll go up quite a bit because there weren't the beds, there weren't the respirators. If you end up with a severe infection from this, you need to be hospitalized for several weeks. And um, most people I think that are being hospitalized are using at least an oxygen mask. Um, And if you end up in critical care of the ICU, then you need to be on a respirator. And so that's one thing. Um, Another thing is I think because there is no vaccination for it, like we have a flu vaccine obviously, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna cover all of the strains of the flu virus that actually circulate the globe in any given year. But it does help when people have the flu vaccine, if they do contract the strain that the vaccine covers or one of the strains the vaccine covers, they generally won't get as ill as if they hadn't had it. Now, that being said, Those people also may think that they only have a cold or a sinus infection and they're out in public sharing the flu germ with whoever didn't have the vaccine. So, you know, that's that's a whole other thing. Um, So there's that piece. And then the other piece is that they don't know enough about this virus yet. They don't know if it's airborne yet or not. As far as the last information I was able to glean um, earlier today. And, um, they don't know, you know, exactly what the, I mean, for example, they're saying that if you're elderly or if you're immune compromised, that you're more likely to have a moderate or a severe infection from this. And that if you're younger or you're not immune compromised, that you're most likely going to catch it, but that you'll have a very mild Uh, infection. And those symptoms from that include a fever and a dry cough. Those are the main symptoms. So this is something that goes directly to the lungs. So in Chinese medicine speak, that's sort of concerning because usually we have pathogens enter the body a little bit more slowly than that. They don't go directly to an organ and wreak havoc. This goes directly to the lungs. And so it doesn't come in, it's not like it's bothering the sinuses where you have a chance to, I don't know, try to keep it from going into the lungs. Um, so with the flu, usually you'll have sinus symptoms. Yes, it can go into the lungs. You'll get some post nasal drip. You might get a secondary bronchitis or a secondary pneumonia from that. But chances are your body's going to overcome it before it gets to that point um so the other problem with this is that healthcare workers are getting moderate to severe illness from this because the viral loads that they're being exposed to are so great that their body cannot process it so they can't keep up with so they need oxygen they need whatever antivirals they're trying to administer right now um So in the, and even, I mean, and they need to be in the hospital, a lot of them. So that's like, that's scary because we need our healthcare workers and the ones who remain healthy certainly can't work 24 seven. The other thing with this is that they've categorized it into uh, mild, moderate and severe. So mild is, it feels like an upper respiratory infection that in only 1% of the people will stimulate sinus symptoms. Problem is with that is that we're coming into allergy season. So, you know, people might think that they're just getting a cold mixed with allergies or something like that. Secondly, so they've categorized it into mild and then moderate. Moderate is people that need to be hospitalized. Um, And by being hospitalized, that doesn't mean you go in for a night. That means you're in for three to six weeks.
0: Oh. Yeah. That's yeah, that's, I would yeah, I, I have it, when you said that I actually thought you were gonna go the opposite like hospitalized means that like you went to the hospital. Right.
1: You went to urgent care or something, right? Yeah. You yeah. went to the doctor, you went to urgent care, you know, they gave you a shot and you left or whatever. No, it's three to six weeks. Now that that was alarming to me because I mean, you can have a cesarean section in this country and be sent home in two days. You can have a hip replacement and be sent home in a day or two. It's insane because they do not keep people in the hospital anymore if they absolutely don't have to. And in my opinion, they send a lot of people home before they should. So to say that the hospitalization is three to six weeks, that's concerning to me. And that's for a moderate infection. That's if you do end up in the pneumonia stage. And then, of course, the third stage is in you're in the ICU and the hospitalization is probably still around the same amount of time, I would imagine. Yeah. The other thing with this is that the antibody, it looks like right now, from what I read, I think two days ago, that the antibodies only last for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So that means... That were immune to it, or we've built up immunity for a couple of weeks, and then it goes away. <laughs> so there've already been cases of uh, people that have been hospitalized with it. They've had a moderate infection, they've recovered, and then they've gotten it again. Oh. So there's some question as to whether they're getting it again, actually, or if. It's just kind of gone dormant and then reemerges.
0: So why, that, wouldn't our, why wouldn't our memory T cells um, like kick in and be like, hey, like I know what's going on here and then just shuttle it. It's like,
1: not remembering it. It's like the stomach flu you can, yeah. or the stomach bug. You yeah. can get the stomach bug and then you can catch it again three weeks later and have the stomach bug again like you never had it. Yeah. So from my, I don't know all the science behind it, but that's what I'm equating it to. Yeah. Um so that's a drag, right? <laughs> yeah. So
0: well, like, from like a from a biology and <laughs> like from like a, a cellular standpoint, you know, like kind of like what we like a, a real sky high, you know, like overview is just like, you know, basically like, you know, when, you know, like we when something of pathogen like enters our body, you know, from the cellular, then you know, like we fight it off, we create like this bank of memory T cells, it comes right. back in, these memory T cells are like, Hey, I recognize this sequencing, I know what to do and just immediately floods the system with the killer T cells and then kind of takes care of it before any symptoms really relate. So that's kind of like what scares me is that like, if it is sitting dormant in the body, why isn't that process taking place? Or is there kind of like it morphing in between where like a memory T cells wouldn't really recognize it? Or, uh-huh. you know, like the underlying continual taxation on the immune system that, you know, if it's sitting dormant, but still creating that much disruption? Or is it like, you know, especially here in like Western culture where our immune systems, well, most of our immune systems are so compromised already. Anyway, it might be doing its job, or remember, T cells, killer T cells, doing their jobs. However, we're just at such a deficit already that we're not even playing with the full stack of cards. All
1: of those are possible scenarios, absolutely. And and they just don't know enough about it yet. Honestly, they just don't know enough about it. And so the other uh, reason for concern with this virus is that. At least in the United States, we simply do not have the infrastructure to keep up with what the projected numbers are. So say this spreads um, at the rate that it has in China with the moderate infections that need to be treated in-house or in the hospital. Then we don't have the beds and we don't have the ventilators. So like I said, in China, that's probably part of what happened that made the death toll so high Is they just didn't have the infrastructure and the resources immediately when they needed it to be able to help the people that needed the most help when they needed it. And so so the calculations uh, for the rest of the world are based on those stats. And honestly, we're not going to know what the actual stats are for the whole thing until after it's pretty much over with. Mm-hmm. Um, another problem is that they don't actually know how it transmits. They know it it ends up in droplets. So, And this is something that I think we all need to be aware of, whether it's this virus or the flu or the cold or whatever it is. I mean, most of us have loved ones who are aging or elderly, and we don't want to expose them with things. And I think that people do on a regular basis. I just had a a client that, um, probably had the flu and and took the train to Manhattan. And, you know, it's like, it's, we need to start thinking more about protecting our loved ones and our extended communities, Mm -hmm. um, and taking responsibility for our health. And, um, and I think even making sure that employers are are encouraging us to do the same so this is like a huge wake-up call for how we view transmitting illness to other people and our responsibility to keep our whole community healthy and safe and so for example even me talking right here i droplets that i don't even see are coming out of my mouth right and If you cough or you sneeze, it's like this huge, like imagine this huge dust cloud. I liken it to like Pigpen from the Charlie Brown cartoon because Pigpen was like this kind of gross, dirty guy. And he was always walking around and the dust was shooting up off the ground out of him and everywhere in the airspace around him. And we actually walk around like that all the time. We exist inside of a microbial cloud. We are constantly, we are a piece of nature that is constantly interacting with nature, with our environment, with the other pieces of nature we come into contact with, i.e. other humans, pets, et cetera, and they're interacting with us. So we always have this dust cloud around us or a microbial cloud around us, but if we are, say, Um, asymptomatic or if we even have symptoms we need to be more more careful about that right we need to be more careful about how close we're getting to other people if you know one of our kids has the flu and we go to work and you know what i mean because we could have it and be asymptomatic until tomorrow so i think those are things that we all need to start thinking about and like i know in the u.s the cdc the center for disease control recommends grabbing a tissue sneezing or coughing into the tissue throwing the tissue out and then washing your hands well that's all well and good but how many people are actually going to go wash their hands if they do that and so and you're going to get it on your hand too what i recommend is that people use the crook of their elbow because you're not really going to touch anybody with the crook of your elbow Mm -hmm. um if you have to cough or if you have to sneeze and um and the hand washing is the thing unless you're um Uh, you've done any kind of medical work in a facility where you've been trained in not spreading infectious disease, then you don't know that you have to wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. And so what I do is I sing row, row, row your boat in my, in my head or happy birthday. Um, Before this happened, I would sing it slowly one time. I'm singing it twice now. (laughs) And I teach my my daughter to do that as well when she washes her hands. And you have to get, like, in between your fingers, underneath your nails, the backs of your hands. And then the other thing is that if you use hand sanitizer, it's not as good as washing your hands. But it's about 60% um, effective at uh, breaking down... Specifically, even the coronavirus, because it's surrounded in a lipid. It's surrounded in a lipid membrane, and any kind of disinfectant is going to break down that membrane, and that will keep the virus from being active. So, if you use hand sanitizer, you have to rub your hands together briskly. Vis- vis- briskly, sorry. I was trying to say vigorously and briskly at the same time <laughs> for 20 seconds and not like pat them dry or wipe the excess off. You have to let it dry on your hands. Mm. So I think those are really two good pieces of information to keep in mind. And it, it is possible that it's spread via um, just airborne. And what that means is, yes, if you sneeze or you cough and a droplet comes out and there's virus in that droplet – That's one thing. In a way, that's airborne if somebody sneezes on you or you walk through it or whatever. But the other thing is that if it's airborne, that means that the virus just travels on a dust particle. Mm -hmm. So if you're somebody like me who has a clinic and you may be exposed, you know, because you have a lot of people coming in and out on a regular basis and you're in pretty close contact with them, then I would recommend if you're in an area where you know that there've been cases nearby and the uh, schools are starting to think about closing and stuff like that, then wear a mask. Um, And so I feel like I've been talking and you probably want to say something. So go ahead.
0: (laughs) No, I like, I I think like, just um, like, like, I I love the, the detail, um, but kind of like a, a, a few like the underlying things here that like, I think like, that people need to take into consideration or just some food for thought that we all do is like, for one, I truly feel like this is one of the, the problems that I don't know if we'll ever truly understand how to be able to overcome because we are just not meant to be able to live in such big urban centers. Like, right. Like we can argue this back for the but like at really at not a whole lot of points in time, have we ever lived in, big urban centers and the only big urban centers that have ever existed prehistorically have all been subject to like some kind of disease for yeah. the most part and have yeah. been completely obliterated them. And like we are starting to see trends like that happen in the world. If we just go back to like H1N1, SARS, coronavirus, mm-hmm. these things, like we see things like this happen because of this is what happens when we have 5 million, 10 million, 30 million, you know, like like millions of people concentrated in one area because no, not everybody's going to wash their hands. No, not everybody's going to sneeze in the crook of their elbow. No, not everybody's going to stay home when they're sick. No, nope. none of these things. It is going to happen and we will never, like, not everybody's going to wear a mask. We will never be able to count these things. Some people are like, I only wash my clothes after I wear them twice. Some people are, I wash my clothes, like, Every time some people change their bed sheets and pillowcases once a week, some people do it once a month. Like, you know, like all of these different things, you know, like I'm a, a working parent. I don't <laughs> have childcare. My child's a little bit sick. They need to go to school. I can't not go to work. You know, like, like this is the problem with us living in, like uh-huh. centers is that we will continue to do this no matter how good of a job we try to do to be able to mitigate. It. And I think like a key part to, taken into consideration not that you or i are a, like the definition of perfect health but i believe that we are probably more mindful about our health than the average person living in north america per yeah. se but we canceled the podcast last month because we were both sick right So, it's like even when you are trying to do as much this is a problem because it is inevitably going to happen but we also do know that Every year, it trends and gets worse and worse and worse because of all these things. We are becoming more urbanized every year. You know, We are becoming less health conscious every year. We're doing more things that compromise our immune system every year. Our pesticide levels are higher in our bodies. Our herbicide levels are higher in our bodies. You know, We're eating more processed and packaged foods than ever. You know, We're less physically active than ever. We're less mindful of our health and the health of the people around us. But just like what we talked about before the podcast too, and kind of want to segue this into it, is that I haven't taken a Tylenol or an Advil or anything in probably 15 or 20 years. I definitely not taken antibiotics in 20 or 25, but when I went and got my antibiotic levels checked about a month and a half ago, they were so high, it was like I was on antibiotics at the time okay. that got them checked out. And I only eliminated one thing, that I had a pretty good idea that it was coming from like the chicken that I ate because, you know, like our beef in Canada is no longer allowed to have antibiotics in it. Okay. So the only thing I was eating was chicken. So I'm like, well, I can easily eliminate like this one chicken source. And within a month, it dropped my antibiotic levels in half. That's so like amazing. it clearly was this. So this is like kind of like my, my yeah. question to you with this is that because the numbers in China are based on how many people maybe initially perished because- There wasn't enough beds. There wasn't enough resources. They were not prepared for it. There wasn't enough staff, all these things. So they've been basing these numbers kind of on these. Now, when you get to like North America, we just assume that it's going to grow at the greater rate. Well, if we have such underlying amounts of like antibiotics in our system, are we in an advantage because of that? Are we at a disadvantage because of that? That's a great Um, question. like, Like, you know, we could end up by default by living this kind of unhealthy lifestyle because we have to commercially produce meat. Does that help us in the grand scheme of things? But I know in Canada, one of the reasons why they disallowed um, farmers uh, or like, you know, meat producers from using antibiotics is because that we were becoming too immune to the, um, to the relief of antibiotics when we did need them because we had such high levels in our systems because the meat that we ate. So, I find like all of these situations, it's like, because of the world that we live in today, it's really hard to be able to understand, like, what can we do to properly safeguard ourselves, you know, our loved ones, you know, and our community around us? Because like, like, I I just feel like we are just in a vortex of what do we do? How do we do it? And we continually keep throwing ourselves underneath the bus just because of like, the way we live our lives. Like, I guess we could kind of pull back to the antibiotics off the beginning. Like, do you think we're like at an advantage or a disadvantage because we may or may not have higher levels of antibiotics floating around our systems simply because of the food that we eat in um, North America.
1: Okay. So first of all, um, I just want to say that the numbers have gone down in china largely because of their extreme containment efforts so i mean we might be able to say that things have kind of canceled each other out because they're not letting people out of their apartment blocks Mm -hmm. you have to stand six feet away from anybody out on the street the streets are empty and in the areas that are under quarantine and people are like here people are leaving their quarantine like to go to conferences and you know, the grocery store or the concert they want to see or whatever it is. I mean, there I've seen images where it's pretty stark. They're not letting people out of their apartment buildings. Yeah. So, and I think a good
0: thing. I'm just going to hop in there real quick because I, th- I think a lot of people don't know this fact is that um, it was, uh, I think two years ago, Let's call it between one and three. There was, there was an outbreak in China of, so I can't remember exactly what it was, but because China didn't take it that seriously at the beginning and didn't quarantine, um, that it actually was way worse and got heavily criticized by the World Health Organization and a lot of other countries for not taking it seriously enough at the beginning. So I know that there's now kind of been a pendulum swing thinking that like, China is going way too far with this quarantine now because they were criticized in the real um um not too distant past about their lack of efforts last time like like what do you think of that um in regards to the quarantine
1: that could very well be that the i mean i i don't know i i definitely wouldn't want to be in that quarantine i i certainly feel for the people who are um I think that they did the right thing by quarantining
0: yeah,
1: and by being serious about it because look at here, like people are just going and doing whatever they want.
0: Yeah. So That's our North American way of life. I know
1: we're, 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 we're an like, entitled culture, I guess, or something. Um, but it's actually
0: something are. somebody asked me yesterday and that I heard there it is. Like if somebody told you, you had to stay at home for a week, not leave your house with your kids, you know, like a, a loved one, or even just by yourself, could you handle that? And I'd I was be like, like yes. I, yeah, I was, <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm like, it would be interesting, but I'm, I'm really happy I have gym equipment at <laughs> home.
1: Exactly. Right. But the thing is, it's not just going to be a week if it happens.
0: Yeah. You know, we're done like a month. To six weeks, no? Is it like a four to six week process? That
1: would make you go stir crazy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, That's why they're advising people to like go invest in board games and stuff like that here right now. And, you know, it's one of the reasons, it's a good thing that we actually have like cell phones and social media, because if that happens, we'll still be able to feel connected to other humans. So that's a good thing. Um, And to answer your question about the antibiotics. I think that that's. uh, I think that um, we're at a disadvantage overall um, because our microbiome in our bodies, on our skin, in every orifice, in every organ, every tissue, and like most notably in the gut, is a highly complex organic system filled with just tons of microbes that digest things that we can't digest and that manufacture things that we need in our bodies, like B vitamins, for example, or vitamin K or um, anti-inflammatory molecules. Um, The gut microbiome communicates with the brain and tells the brain if we're safe or not which can turn on or turn off fight or flight. Um, It affects moods, it can affect, um, they've done studies where it's affected autism symptoms and um, various illnesses have been linked to what's called a dysbiosis or an, uh, an imbalanced microbiome in the gut. And one of the primary things that can throw the microbiome out of balance, specifically the beneficial microbes that we want to have in our bodies, is antibiotics. One course of antibiotics can change someone's microbiome for six months to two years, best case scenario. Worst case scenario, it never returns to what it was to begin with. Mm-hmm because of how we live and what we eat, our microbiomes are actually like, we have microbes that have been extinct and some that are on the endangered species list, I'm sure, because, um, you know, they've already proven that we don't have microbes anymore in our modern guts that our predecessors had. Um, and, you know, once that's lost, it's lost forever. We don't know, you know, even what those things did. They could have been protective against certain illnesses, for example. Um, People that live uh, a lifestyle like a hunter-gatherer lifestyle in remote parts of the world have a gut microbiome that doesn't allow for chronic disease, chronic inflammatory diseases to manifest. So although they may have a harsh lifestyle in general, and they may not have the same longevity we have in the modern world, they also don't suffer with the same autoimmune conditions that we have. You know, they don't have like peanut allergies, for example, or any of uh, there's a litany of autoimmune conditions. And they're probably naming new ones on a regular basis because there are so many things that are arising that they just can't, figure out what's causing them and it's creating havoc in the body and they these conditions are confusing the natural intelligence of our bodily cells and our immune responses and causing our immune system to recognize our own tissue as something that's not supposed to be there and so um Antibiotics is one of the main things that can send the gut microbiome specifically into a state of dysbiosis or into a state of imbalance. And it's not when you take an antibiotic, you're not just killing off a pathogen. You're, t- you're killing off the beneficial microbes that are producing the anti-inflammatory chemicals or that are potentially keeping a hereditary gene for some illness we don't want to get switched on. So, um so are antibiotics bad? No. Nothing is bad in and of itself. The problem is how it's used and what it's gonna do in an individual's body. So if you don't need them, don't take them. And so then talking about the food supply. Antibiotics in the food is not going to help us in the long run because uh it's sterilizing our guts to the point where it may be that that's weakening or changing our immune system in a way that isn't going to serve us in the long run. Um, Antibiotics, preservatives, toxins and chemicals in the environment that we breathe in, drink and eat that we're exposed to on a regular basis that we probably don't even know about. Those are all things that can damage the gut microbiome and the gut microbiome is intimately connected to the immune system. In fact, it it is responsible for training the immune cells to recognize what is friend and what is foe in the body. So the microbiome basically codes whatever comes into the body as friend or foe, and the immune system then goes and either attacks and destroys it or allows it to pass through. So if there's a disruption to the microbiome and in specific to these these microbes that are supposed to be communicating with the immune system or a disruption in the flow between the microbes and the immune cells, um, then that's, that's a huge problem. Um, the microbes in our gut as, as infants tell our immune system what is friend and foe that's when it learns, um, how to work properly. So these microbes are, a part of us, but they're not a part of us that we can do without. And once we, and everything that we eat and everything that we're exposed to, even stress can modify the microbiome uh, in the gut and change it for better or for worse. So is our antibiotics in the food supply a problem? Absolutely. Are they detrimental to our to our well being? Absolutely. Could it be possible that in certain instances, the antibiotics that we ingest, or uh, intentionally, of course, they can be beneficial to eradicate a bacteria that um, could potentially proliferate and take over and and you know dominate so that it's crowding out the good microbes. Yeah, that's a good reason to take it. Could potentially having antibiotics in our food accidentally help an individual um, to maybe not develop a co-infection of some kinds if they have another illness? It's possible, but overall, what we want is a healthy microbial community in our gut to be able to do that on its own. We have microbes that produce antibiotics, but they do them very specifically to crowd out pathogenic microbes or microbes that we also need, but if, if they grow into too greater numbers can become pathogenic. The good microbes in the gut crowd those out with very specific antimicrobial metabolites or products of their metabolism that they produce in order to keep us healthy. So we actually, if we have a healthy gut microbiome, we're actually encouraging a healthier body and system overall um, just naturally. Mm-hmm.
0: I got kind of like a two a twofold question on that. And either like I'm like completely like out to lunch or you know, there might be Lydia. I guess anywhere in between, but um, you know, like obviously like we all kind of know, I think it's general knowledge now that when we take antibiotics, either voluntarily or involuntarily, that it, it kind of wipes out our our micro gut biome. And like, as you alluded to that, we either have a choice at that point in time to like either eat the foods and do the things and follow the protocols we know we need to do to be able to bring um, that balance back to the body or just do what most people are doing is keep eating the garbage that they're eating with which further disrupts that. So kind of like, I guess what my question is that if we have such a compromised microgut biome anyway, and we're completely obliterating that when we take these antibiotics, and especially if we're consuming food-based products on a regular basis that have a high level of antibiotics in them, is there a disruption um, to the epithelial cells, you know, based on that having like, you know, this massive disruption, this continual pump of antibiotics in there? And then are pathogens more likely to be able to enter the body, you know, through, you know, symptoms of like leaky gut or having like the disrupted epithelial cells? Um, and are we more susceptible to getting sick because of that? And coupled with that, since we live our life in ambient temperatures, and we know kind of more like extreme heat conditions produce more red blood cells, extreme cold situations, um, it, um, uh, occur like more like white blood cells in the body. Is there like this whole process that we're of in between the unhealthy food we're eating and the ambient temperatures that we live in? We're kind of all creating a little bit more of like a perfect storm or like a vortex gets sucked into to being sick or getting more sick or producing different viruses and different bacteria because like you said our body naturally knows what to do but like how we live our lives is so far from natural um to like what our body is used to because we have all these metabolic processes that happen in our body based on these different conditions but we pretty much have curved all of them or like a lot of the ones that are extremely beneficial to our body being healthy and finding a point of homeostasis when we're forced with um, threats entering into our body by way of pathogens and things alike.
1: Um, yeah, and I think that's why in Eastern medicine, they developed an entire system of lifestyle guidance. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's why Hippocrates said all disease begins in the gut. Um, as to whether the antibiotics directly adversely affect the epithelial cells themse- themselves, I don't know that. What I do know is that it can disrupt the function of the microbes in the gut to such an extent that um, the mucose, mucosal lining that protects the epithelial cells can be damaged and the junctions between the epithelial cells can be damaged so that they're not tightly pushed together. And that's what leaky gut is. It's when the damage comes to the mucosal lining because of a dysbiosis in the, in the microbiome, and then particles are able to get through that lining. Mm-hmm. And then they get into the lymph that surrounds the intestines that's supposed to catch them. And sometimes they then get into the bloodstream and can migrate to other parts of the body.
0: So we can definitely see how there's like a cascading effect that is going to happen. And if anything, we're kind of feeding that system versus stopping it. So, based on like how like our lives here, we're, we're kind of, we see the compounding effect of making it harder for our bodies to be able to fight off these pathogens and these foreign invaders into our body than actually stacking the cards. Um, in our favor, but um, I think this would be like a great segue to be able to talk about what we were talking about before—is like what China is doing um, from a, a medicinal standpoint on its own to be able to combat the coronavirus, the people who have it, and people um, who they deem to might be getting it, and just everything around it from like an Eastern perspective. Because, um, like you alluded to at the beginning before we started recording is is very much different and it will be very different than what we are doing here in western culture.
1: Right. So for people that have mild symptoms, mild cases, um some Chinese medicine d- so first of all in China there's western medicine and then there's traditional Chinese medicine or TCM as it's called, which is also standardized and credentialed by the government. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a People's Republic of China Office of Traditional Medicine that regulates traditional Chinese medicine training in China. And in a lot of the hospitals, they have a wing for TCM practitioners. And so that doesn't mean just acupuncturists. When you talk traditional Chinese medicine in China, what you're talking about is herbal medicine, and not just herbs, but other substances that are used as medicinals.
0: So maybe uh, I can pop in here real quick just to, um, because you were also talking about some some sources of how you found out this information. So I, I like, I want to make sure that when people are listening to this, like they know that, like how much research you've done into this and know like that, you know, they keep actually sourced this information and, and like where it's come from. Um, and it's not yeah. just simply like, like a theory or, or a guesswork.
1: No, no I have. Um, so as far as all of the Western information that I've been sharing, I've been going to very reliable News sources, the CDC site. Um, I've been keeping up with updates from the New York Times. I've been going to. Um, I get. I'm. I subscribe to various departments uh, like Twitter articles and things like that. Um, I am checking sources when I see an article pop up, and I'm checking numbers. And um, so I've I've been really diligent about that piece um you know npr pbs uh bbc you know it's very mainstream a lot of it but um but i am checking sources to make sure that it's not just you know like some tabloid magazine or news source that i'm getting the information from because i i want to make sure that what i'm offering clients that are coming in and asking me questions about it is truth um, and you know, like that,
0: Chinese uh, medicines, everyone, what they're doing in China, like how have you sourced that information?
1: So a lot of that information is, um, uh, it's coming from my alumni, from my school that I went to, because I being kind of in upstate New York here, I don't have the same kind of Chinese community to tap into that I had when I lived in Seattle, and um, so I reached out to my alumni group, and a lot of people responded, and they sent me um, they sent me a booklet that was issued by the People's Republic of China on their um, what they're recommending for their standardized protocol for treating coronavirus right now for tra- traditional Chinese medicine practitioners in China.
0: Is that um, something that like we could post like like a link to or anything like that? Like, sure. on, on
1: yeah, Facebook. I can send you that. I can send you that. Um, and there are also uh, there's there's a Chinese doctor that a lot of people in the community that I was associated with when I lived in Seattle have been in close contact with, and um, he's like a really well known, uh, well respected doctor, and uh, several of the alumni from my school are students of his and he's in china and he's been part of a group of chinese medicine doctors who have been interacting via you know like web groups and zoom calls or whatever i'm assuming whatever they use over there that's like this um and brainstorming really to understand what the nature of the pathogen is and how it should be treated properly with Chinese medicinals, because in in the in the traditional Chinese medicine system, there are treatises or really thick books <laughs> telling you the nature of a pathogen, whether it's cold, whether it's hot, whether it's damp, whether it's phlegmy, whether it's dry, whether it's a toxin, whether it's just a bug, um, and And based upon what type of pathogen you're dealing with, you need to prescribe medicinals that are not going to encourage the proliferation of that. You need to be looking at the environment within the person's body and making sure that the environment in that individual's body is not the perfect breeding ground for whatever that pathogen is. And you need to alter a formula so that it's not only trying to eradicate the pathogen, but making the environment inside that person's body less hospitable to that pathogen. Mm. So that's the way that Chinese medicine has this beauty about it that differs a lot from the, the germ theory that we use in allopathic medicine, which is we identify a specific strain of something, and then we create an antiviral or an antimicrobial That eradicates that strain, but that doesn't take into account what it's doing to the person's body in the process. So in China, they're using medicinals in the way I just described, and they're also using them to help balance out what the Western pharmaceuticals are doing to the person's internal environment Mm
0: -hmm. so that
1: their gut microbiome can come back, so that their lung microbiome can come back. And so, and come back more quickly. And so um, I'll just continue answering your question. So um, there are a couple of great uh, podcasts that I've listened to as well. And one of them is Michael Max's Chiological podcast. And he interviewed this uh, Chinese doctor that I was talking about. And then there is another uh, podcast called Botanical Biohacking. And that's a couple of Chinese medicine practitioners who, um, have studied the pathogen. They've studied with this teacher and they actually do a lot with looking at the microbiome from a Chinese medicine standpoint, which I find very interesting um, because a lot of people aren't talking about it that way, talking about treating with Chinese medicine and and keeping the microbiome specifically in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have a podcast called Botanical Biohacking and they had a few really cool episodes that, um, are great if you're a, a chinese medicine practitioner and you don't know about that i highly recommend that you that you listen to those episodes in order to better understand how the coronavirus is working inside someone's body and what herbs that are best to use at least at
0: this point to treat it um what so, i think you do just so that people understand is like we get trapped and locked in to like our specific way of thinking here like in western right. culture that there is no other way there is no other option and like it's just a narrative that I run into all the time especially when you're talking about like TCM the first thing that almost everybody says that's outside of that environment is just the the immediately (coughs) spread it you know and like I that's the one thing that I like about like what you said and what I keep trying to like bring people back to too is that like outside of like Western culture you know and especially like in China like, you have to be accredited, you know, like you do in, like, Alpaca Medicine here. Absolutely. Like it's, it's not just some hokey practice, like, around the world. Like, it is treated, like, very seriously. Like, like yeah. there is an extensive accreditation process to be able to go through. And we only think that here, again, like, I equate it to be, like, the same thing, like, like, racism and bigotry and everything. Like, because it's an uneducated perspective, we immediately attack it. And mm-hmm. you know, having podcasts like that and like us having like this conversation, just it forces the ability for people to be able to think like, am I open-minded enough to think that there's a way of perceiving this information outside of what I hear on CNN and CNBC? That's mm-hmm. pretty much where most people are going to be able to feed their information and whether or not like that is valid information or not, it's the same regurgitated narrative by like the same you know, major media outlets that, you know, that you're alluding to at the beginning that, you know, our journalism is just at an all time low of what it's ever been at this current point in time. So unless if you're willing to actually spend the time, which most people aren't in investigating, like that's how we end up in like these very one sided perspectives. So I'm really glad that you listed those podcasts, because it's going to challenge everybody to like, say, are you willing to be able to listen to these podcasts to be to see that there is another side to this coronavirus what it's actually doing and other ways to be able to either treat it or help prevent from getting it in the first place
1: right so it's it's pretty awesome like what they first i want to say regarding sources because i think it's really important where people are getting their information from back in the day like in the early 90s i almost went through school to be a journalist i wanted to be an international correspondent and so I trained with really high caliber professionals in the industry and sourcing is like a huge part of it. Like you have to know, you have to know how to sift through what is true and what is hearsay and where a source may have gotten their information from another source where it could just be hearsay. Like, you really have to be mindful of that, especially if you're gonna be producing a work that is citing sources. So um, with all the information that we have like on Facebook and Twitter and, and you know wherever people are getting their inf- information from, particularly on social media, so much stuff is just like kind of pulled and regurgitated, a lot of it's BS. And um, you really need to know how to sift through that. So. That's what I really try to do. And I double check and I triple check. And if I say something one day because something that I found said that and then the information changes, I'm the first one to admit that, you know, that's not the way it is anymore or I was wrong before when I said it. So I just want to put that out there. And so um, with regard to what they're putting out with with what's happening in China is – It's just, it's such a good marriage of Western and Chinese medicine because, you know, in Western medicine, they've got the facilities, they've got the ventilators, they've got some antivirals. Nothing's been real great at eradicating this. But um, with Chinese medicine, they've been really able to support the person's body through the whole process as the disease progresses. And, And for the people that are in moderate or critical condition in the hospital, they really need any extra support that they can get. And I believe that the Chinese government mandated in Hubei, it might've been Wuhan specifically, that that Chinese medicine has to be used alongside of Western medicine in the hospital. Because one of the statistics I read it was that people were leaving the hospital like 36% faster with Chinese medicine than without it. Mm -hmm. And people's fevers. uh, One case study I read is the fever came down in a day after being on the herbs. And this is a a fast moving thing. It's like it kind of, it creates a situation in the body where it loves to nestle into damp areas of the body and it creates dampness once it gets in there. And dampness is that sticky uh, residue or the ama or the toxin that we talk about in, in both Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, we call it ama. Um, it's, it's like this goo that forms and in our bodies. It's like a, a thick, sticky mucus and, Um, And that's what's overwhelming the lung system. In addition to the fact that the pathogen is actually like eating up the lungs in some way, it's damaging the lung tissue. Um, So we need to clear the inflammation in the system. And we also need to uh, transform and drain and, um, and vent out any way we can that's appropriate for that person's constitution in that moment that damp piece because we want to get rid of the dampness so that we can create an environment that's less habitable for the pathogen mm-hmm. so like what they're finding is that the majority with the chinese medicine doctors are finding is that the majority of the people that end up in uh, moderate or severe condition um, have tongue coatings that are indicative of, of a constitutional inclination toward dampness. They have a lot of dampness in their body to begin with. So already, starting, like,
0: sorry to cut you off, Like just to kind of like, get into it for people like, like how does dampness manifest in the body? You know, like how do we get um, like it all just,
1: the things you were talking about, our lifestyle, okay. like wrong lifestyle for just in general, but also specific, constitutional types need more sleep some need more greens some need more fats and oils some need more proteins so there's the general guidelines and then there's the specific guidelines that eastern medicine has for the different constitutional types to keep yourself healthy because depending on what constitutional type you're born with you're going to have a natural inclination to go out of balance in that area so if you're naturally like a wet soggy damp kind of person um, or a kapha person in ayurveda uh, water or earth person in chinese medicine then you're going to naturally have an inclination toward developing more dampness now that doesn't mean anyone can't have dampness but what it does mean is that those people are going to be more inclined to experiencing that more often than not and um and the dampness comes about from wrong diet, wrong lifestyle, being exposed to things that aggravate the system. And then the body creates more dampness in order to push whatever that junk is out of the tissue, whether it's an environmental toxin or a preservative or the antibiotics in the chicken or whatever it is, whatever is really not supposed to be there or the microplastics Mm -hmm. that we're exposed to, um, and that we all probably have in our bodies. So that
0: now, just gonna, let me let me jump in real quick is like um i find it to be very uh, ironic right, that in some of the podcasts we've done before like we talked about how there's a rise of kappa body types in the world right now specifically because of how people are choosing um to live their lives you know, and we were referencing that around you know like western culture in canada the united states but like do you find the irony that there's an influx in kappa um um like constitution happening, like with inside the body. And now we're seeing a virus, you know, kind of emerging onto the world market that is very inhabitable in that same constitution. Or is that just me getting all conspiracy theory there?
1: No, I mean, it's, it, it's, um, it's an interesting connection. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the, and another interesting thing about that, like when you're talking about a kapha type, you're talking about probably somebody who's a little bit more overweight, a little bit more sluggish, more sedentary. Um, those things are more like kapha in nature as an imbalance, but a lot of times they're rooted in a vata imbalance, which is an imbalance in the nervous system, which is an imbalance in the mind. Okay. So if there's some kind of mental and emotional trauma that's created in a mental or emotional pattern that's creating an environment in the body through the person's lifestyle and choices that is prone to that sort of thing, then that that's really the root of it it's not the excess weight it's that trauma or that mental and emotional holding pattern in the actual body itself
0: um, we also know that like you know mental health concerns that are an all-time high in like western culture right now too you know and they're linked, younger- the
1: mind is totally intricately linked to the gut microbiome
0: mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of
1: times people feel like they're anxious and they don't know why and it could be linked to something that go, that's going on in their gut, some battle that's raging between the good and, and the, the beneficial and the potential um, overcrowding pathogen or something that's happening in the gut that's signaling to the brain that the person isn't safe
0: mm-hmm.
1: and vice versa. And then the brain will signal that to the body and that changes the gut microbiome.
0: Yeah, and you kind of see like that real push pull happening in the body. Like the mind doesn't know like how to properly steer the body, and the body doesn't know how to properly steer the mind. You know, and like we're just it it, there. It's just a tug of war, you know. And like our physical, mental, and emotional state, you know, is the in the middle of that rope. And then we all of a sudden we enter like these viruses into it that are seeming to be like like a byproduct of like these environments or just not allowing ourselves to be able to create like the best environment to be able to combat these things when they are, um, you know, prevalent in the world. So I guess like my question to you is, you know, since I kind of entered, you know, kind of maybe like a little bit of global <clears throat> conspiracy theory into there is that like, do you think that, um, you know, because obviously there's a lot of people who want to either think it as something to do with this tier four biological warfare facility in Wuhan, like that that's the cause of it. Um people want to label the way Chinese people are eating, you know, whether it's fat soup or whether it's this um this land animal, you know, that is being consumed, you know, versus people that think that this is just kind of like a par for the course like genetic mutation of like a virus that has been out there before. Like um like I actually find it to be the the worst part about the one that I have the toughest time with is people criticizing the way people eat and the choices that they make just because we are so limited in the things that we consider to be food here that when we see a different face of it um i actually have like a really hard time with those narratives when i hear them and i see them on social media i just think it is so unjustly wrong to be able to criticize what people are eating and say it's a yeah. commonality behind that uh, but like where where do you think just like on the research that you've done like like where does your opinion lie like what do, what do you think is like um an origin point of um this whole like you know coronavirus or what's what's the new name they're calling? It? I know we still call it COVID
1: nineteen. The-
0: yeah, um, like what do you think is like the the origins or like just based on like the information you've heard? Like what, what do you speculate is the origins of this?
1: First of all, I want to say I agree with you about the food choice thing, mm. and secondly, I want to say when people are in a tight spot, they eat what they have to. You know, like in World War Two. I'm sure people in the UK adapted by incorporating things that are an acquired taste because they had to they um, Like
0: rotting food, you know, like moldy, stale bread. Everybody knows that in world war two, like people were eating even like moldy stale bread, you know, at like a minimum, you know, like, like the potatoes, rotting moldy, yeah. like people were eating that stuff like on regular because there just wasn't very much around. So like you said, you know, um, was it like necessity is the mother of invention, right?
1: Right. And so in China, the reason we have all these amazing treatises on how to treat, first of all, how to identify what kind of a pathogen we're dealing with, and second of all, how to treat it, is because there have been so many epidemics that have gone through China in the past, you know, millennia, um, that... There has been that necessity for doctors to figure this stuff out. And one way they learn is by giving treatments that make things worse. And so it says in these treatises, if you give this and the person's presenting like this, you're going to do this to them. So, I mean, this stuff has happened over and over and over and over again in China. They have been isolated from the rest of the world for a really long time, up until, you know, recent the past like fifty to hundred years. And not only that, but they have endured horrendous epidemics and famines. Um so they have had to incorporate things into their they they'd have they've had to eat things that they wouldn't ordinarily eat, you know, and then that stuff just stays. You know, so maybe some of the dietary choices are just that they have a more extensive palate than we are open to here. But I think some of it also might be stuff that got incorporated in those times of famine. And, um, and with regard to epidemics, it's, it's been happening and it's always going to happen. And we're probably going to see it get worse because of globalization, because of, you know, and the ability to pass things like around the world like that because of uh, climate change even um, and deforestation and, and, you know, whatever. And because of how we're eradicating the optimal microbiomes we could have in our guts uh, with unhealthy food choices, unhealthy living situations and circumstances and environments um, and unhealthy lifestyle Uh, expectations and so um and choices so i think that these things have always happened that they're always going to happen um and with regard to this specific pathogen i have heard uh actually a lot of people have concerns that this is not something that arose without the help of a laboratory somewhere yeah um and i think that's possible but I also think getting angry about that is not going to help the situation at all. Now we're in kind of the thick of it, in a sense, and that we need to really focus on what we're going to do about it now that it's happening. And, I mean, can we, as a global community, have a discussion about biological warfare and and these types of things? Um, and perhaps take efforts toward minimizing or eradicating the, the experimentation with these things in the future. That's a really good, you know, discussion to have. That's a, that's maybe something else we should be looking at. You know, we, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, like nuclear, mm-hmm. uh, warfare that's something you know we saw the results of the bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki and the the, just the horrible outcome from that and so that touches people at a very deep level and and so a lot of people are connected with eradicating nuclear um you know military uh capabilities and and production globally that's an easy one to connect with. Mm -hmm. We also have proven that we created that and that did that. But with something like this, I think first it would have to be proven that that's indeed how it got out instead of just kind of lingering in the back of everyone's minds. Because I think that that's a thought a lot more people are having than they even be saying it. I know that, many of the people that have walked through my clinic door, many family members, many friends have said that to me or have, you know, sent me a message where they're asking me what I think about that or they think that. Um so the it, and and I don't I think that it's a possibility for sure. I think it's a possibility.
0: Think, sorry to cut you off like do you think that a way just start bridging some of those gaps because um do you know what's going on with Lyme disease in uh, the Atlantic Northeast right now, and like what they feel is like how that was started, and like because there's that Lyme disease. I guess I can kind of like for people who are the Like, so there's a Lyme specific Lyme disease in the Atlantic Northeast um, that when you're bit by these ticks, you get that Lyme disease. It makes you allergic to meat, and you get like these like you know severe like symptoms and. And I think they have, like, in Texas, it was, like, the the Lone Star disease or something along those lines. But, like, yeah, and, like, you know, basically, like, this Lyme disease, they have linked it back. Like, again, like, there's this biological warfare facility in the Atlantic Northeast in the United States um, where, like, they, in, like, that town of Lyme or whatever, like, that's where basically, like, it was. And they know kind of where, like, the epicenter of, like, all of these cases of Lyme disease started um and it is so prevalent now that it's actually being investigated in congress in the united states but there's not really a whole lot of talk about it but you know maybe like these are things like there needs to be more of these things brought to the forefront because like you said with with nuclear weapons like it's so um well i guess for like a pun it's, it's so explosive like it's it's easy to be able to see because of like detriment but when there's like Five hundred people who get Lyme disease—you don't—you don't really think about it. Or well, the
1: problem too is that the that the medical community, as by and large, needs to recognize Lyme. Yeah, and it's so insidious; it hides out in the body, so it's really difficult to test it. And yes. if you, you are first sick with it, you might not have built up the antibodies that to show up on the actual Western blot that they use as the standard testing modality. So. Um, so the medical community itself is going to have to come together and recognize that it's a thing mm-hmm. and it's a thing that's affecting a lot of pe- more people than even know they have it.
0: Yeah.
1: Lyme, bar- Bartonella, the, all these co-infections that one that you mentioned, Rocky Mountain you know, all of this stuff. Um, is a huge concern and um and did it start at that testing facility in in outside of uh in connecticut that i don't know either it's definitely like held as a truth in the lyme community that i have been associated with here for the last you know 20 or 30 years but and, how many
0: people know that? Like that—that's my—that's the problem I have with it. Because
1: is- it is so prevalent here, it's something that's discussed. Yeah. You know, it's—it's pretty—it's a belief, whether yeah. it's a fact or not. It's a belief in the Lyme community, absolutely. What I want to add to that, though, is that Lyme wasn't itself, as far as I know, created in a lab because that Etsy, the ice man that they found that's 10,000 years old that they found in the Alps had either Lyme or one of the Lyme co-infections. I think it was Lyme yeah. in its tissue. So, so it's something that's been on the planet, but whether it was being, you know, um, manufactured or whether it got somehow contamination got out of the facility and it was an accident. I mean, I don't no, for sure, nobody's come out and said that that's been the case yet. um
0: But, but very interesting is- that it's being discussed in Congress. Like, there's actual like legitimate investigations going on now to actually see because there is such an an, an uproar about this actually may have happened that these like like Congress can't hide it anymore. Like they, well, no, it's forced- it spread
1: to the it's spread to the West Coast too, so it's not just in you know, the Northeast, although it is extraordinarily prevalent in the Northeast. And um, there are ticks all over the place now here. I mean, if you take your dog for a walk in a park, you can pretty much assume that there's going to be a tick on the dog. You have to, it's just, there's so many ticks. And I don't remember like being outside playing when I was a kid and having, I'm 47, so yeah um I don't remember being outside playing as a youngster and having ticks on me. I remember you know mosquito bites and and things like that, but now I mean anyone who gardens is finding ticks on them yeah so even what's causing that and then there and then there's also some information that's come out where they're concerned that Lyme can actually be spread through bodily secretions um Um, that would be
0: that would be huge because it it is already such an epidemic and you know and like that's the thing you know like when we go back again like like the correlation between like this you know coronavirus and like Lyme is that you know if people really thought if the global community really understood like how bad this Lyme disease is and the one thing is that it's not just the symptoms of Lyme disease there's so many like co-symptoms of Lyme disease that People are just starting to recognize as symptoms of the original Lyme disease that like, I don't think they really understand how far and how deep the symptoms of Lyme disease go and like the different variations of it is that, but like, it almost is like people should be quarantined from going outside because of like you said, the tick population. I I heard like it's like hundreds of times more than what it was even a decade ago. And like, that doesn't even make any sense.
1: I know. I know. I, I don't, I don't know what to do, but I mean, I'm concerned about it every summer and it's not just the summer. I mean, they're bad through the fall. November is horrible. And, uh, uh, and then if it, I mean, it didn't really freeze that much here this year. So, you know, that, that's another thing is, is Lyme disease is huge. It's not, It's not just these seasonal flus and things like that 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 tend to abate when the temperatures rise and the humidity comes in. It's also, you know, once that's over with, now we got to start worrying about Lyme. I mean, if you have a pet, you have to worry about it because they're gonna they're gonna bring it into the house.
0: Well, and if that dog is like, if that dog is licking you, you know, if that dog is on your bed. Yeah, like anything like that, you know, like, and like, these are the things that, you know, again, that like, we need to take into consideration, which, again, like, I find to be the uneducated alarming perspective is that, you know, with coronavirus, like, everybody is just like, you know, like masks and quarantines and this and that. But like, there's a lot of other things that we're living with every day that we just we refuse to take as seriously or like, oh, it's happening in the Pacific Northeast. It's fine. Because Nobody's really reporting it. Nobody's really covering it. But amongst the community, it is a big deal. But like outside of the community, nobody's really talking about it except for, you know, maybe like on podcasts like this or in conversations like this. Because I'm sure when people started listening to this, the last thing they thought we would be talking about is like what, you know, I, again, like people would probably initially think is like some conspiracy theory between you and I. But again, if they went to the Atlantic Northeast, and like had some conversations with people, they would be able to back up what you're saying right now. Is like it is a really, really big problem in here. Like I could go out in in the mountains with my shirt off and spend all day for like weeks and months, and I would probably never get a tick on me.
1: It's advised not to go off a trail without having you your body completely covered. Yeah, completely covered, and to use deep.
0: Yeah. Which again, you wouldn't want to use D on your body. Like again, like you know, like where on your you
1: clothes, stop? on everything. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty severe. I mean it makes you think twice about oh should I go like for that picnic or. <laughs> You know, how bad is that park this year? Are there a lot of deer around? And, and it used to be that it was just the little teeny, itsy, meansy ticks that you can't even see. But now they're saying that more and more species and, and sizes of ticks are, or are, um, are ages of ticks are carriers. So I had somebody that was here uh, last summer. They went to uh, eat in an outdoor restaurant and ticks were falling out of the tree onto their table.
0: That is insane.
1: I know. In in it like I'm in a, a town, you know, it's not like they're in the middle of, you know, Sherwood Forest or something. Yeah. So it's just uh it's a huge problem. It's a and, huge problem. Yeah,
0: yeah, and this is also at a time too, like where we're telling people, you know, go outside, reconnect right. with nature, you know,
1: and jack- you don't feel like you can. Go out yeah. barefoot, do some earthing, right? Yeah.
0: And it's uh, like you know, it'll help lower your blood pressure until you find okay. out you have Lyme disease, and then your blood pressure will be high okay. because you stressed out and because you have Lyme disease. And okay. so it's like the juxtaposition of like this is like, you know, like I, I just find this to be like the real interesting part about the world that we live in today when it's like, How do we navigate that? You know, like when well, we really I look know. at it, it's like like how do we navigate I this know. world that we have created and it doesn't seem like like I want to be optimistic that we're in. Like I feel like we are kind of getting down the road of change, but it's like, like there's a lot of things. Like, like do, do you think like what would really need to happen to like eradicate ticks and Lyme disease in the Atlantic Northeast? Like, like that problem is like unfathomable. Like, how would you ever do that with how rampant it is now? Because oh, no. again, like the coronavirus, it is rapidly spreading across. The United States and Canada, but nobody's really talking about that, but then we get this thing with the coronavirus, and we're like there's just so many of these little things like that you know yeah. we're like where do where do we fit in you know like like where does like and, where- well and
1: it gets back to how it gets back to some extent to prevention
0: yeah.
1: and learning uh the best lifestyle and the best dietary choices for your individual body and mind type um so that you can build up as much resilience i know what i've observed over the past uh 12 years in the clinic is that people that get bit and get lyme disease it's like the ticks love them yeah because they keep getting them over i've had people come in and it's like the same few people they just keep they'll come in they'll have a tick on them <laughs> it's it's uh it's crazy and and so um you know i I don't know what to do about that the I think the best thing that we can do is to take our lifestyle change seriously right now, yeah, because you're, you're our really lifestyles realized, are right. out of control, we're too busy, we're not exercising enough, we're not eating well because we're we're too busy um there's too There's just so much going on around us. We're overstimulated to the point where our brains just can't get the rest that they truly need. We're not sleeping well overall, um, as a society. And, um, and we need to slow down so that we can tune in to what our bodies are actually telling us. I mean, we're so disconnected Mm. from what's here and now, um, you know, even myself, I'm constantly checking in. Am I really grounded? And when I'm not, I know it, and I have to keep pulling myself back because there's so many distractions, so many expectations from the outside, so many responsibilities, um, and so many things to do. And and we need to really get to know ourselves better. Get to know what our our true limits are, not the ones that we bulldoze through in order to get everything done on the list for the day but there the, are real limits and modify our lives accordingly to that and until we start taking that seriously we're just all headed for you know uh, uh, just not being present not enjoying our lives like we can and and potentially you know going out of balance
0: mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe that's a, a great place that I know that we're, uh, just uh, going to have to shut this down in the next few minutes anyway. And like, as per usual, like we could carry this conversation on <laughs> until, uh, seven Wednesdays from now and stuff. But, um, and, uh, but yeah, like it, it just maybe like drop some information and I know I always put it in your bio and we've told people before, but you know, if they want to get in contact with you to ask any questions about coronavirus or, you know, um, uh, just no. your, uh, your professional advice and anything, just kind of throw out your information. Uh, so people
1: can- yeah. So I have a Facebook page. It's my author page is Bridget Shea, um, B-R-I-D-G-E-T-T-E-S-H-E-A. My clinic page is Ageless Acupuncture, and you'll know it's mine because it has a lotus flower logo. And I have some videos on there about coronavirus and Chinese medicine. Um, I can uh, I'll send put you the links
0: my- up to them. Yeah.
1: Okay. I I have to figure out how to do that (laughs)
0: because
1: there were Facebook lives that I did. So I'm having someone try to uh, download those for me today and, and get those on YouTube. Um, I have some videos on YouTube on Bridget Shea. I have a website, bridgetshea.com and that has resources that have a bunch of videos and um, audio lectures Um, I have a handbook of Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, which is a really good resource for, first of all, understanding the basic foundations of Eastern medicine so that you can understand it in a way that doesn't sound so much like an obstacle that needs to be overcome. And then um, my next book is actually available for pre-order now. It's called Cultivating Your Microbiome. And, um, that's going to be released on September and September 8th, but, wow. um, yeah, so it's on like Barnes and Noble, indie books, um, Amazon, of course, and innertraditions.com. And that's going to have a lot of good information on the different microbiomes in the body and how we can cultivate those for the better using the principles of Eastern medicine. Uh, so it builds on the information in the first book. But it also introduces the microbiome, both in scientific, Western scientific terms, and in terms of how it was looked at historically from an Eastern medicine point of view.
0: Amazing. Well, thank, thank you so much. I just, it's You're always welcome. such an honor having you on. And I, I love our conversations immensely. And like this one is, uh, was just a chip off the old box. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you.